Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is February 12th, 2021. On today's episode, we'll be discussing internal cyber threats and domestic terrorism. With the recent attack on the nation's capital and a cyber attack on water and utility services in Florida, we're discussing how the national security and United States intelligence agencies work to prevent internal and domestic terror threats. Today, our episode features Lieutenant General Frank Carity, our macro strategist Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn. General Kearney, our discussions often focus on geopolitical risk and external threats to national security. Today, we are going to be discussing internal threats. Could you help set the table by explaining some of the differences in how the national security and intelligence apparatus operates to counteract the threats of domestic terrorism? But internal threats are a wholly different uh, enterprise and require a different set of uh, of protections uh, where U.S. citizens at home are protected even more uh, and we don't really have the FISA courts and those kind of things, so you have to get a warrant to do a lot of different things. So the work for local law enforcement, the FBI, uh, and the intelligence community, to include NSA, who works on a lot of different things, becomes much more complicated when you're working to solve these challenges for cyber hacks in particular at home, but also law enforcement sharing between the, the different agencies. It was a it was a huge issue for us at the National Counterterrorism Center when I worked there, you know, as you tried to piece together the different component parts. And that's why we created these joint terrorism task forces in many of the major cities around America to be able to bring together all the different law enforcement intelligence assets to be able to get a complete picture of what was going on. And that, you know, that, that was a result of, uh, you know, the work done in the legislation after 9-11 over. In your view, how do the events of January 6th and the attack on the Capitol change how we view and address internal threats? Yeah, I think the, the, the key piece is the fact that we are so divided and have social media uh, not just as a, a platform that allows you to say whatever you want anonymously to a certain degree, uh, but to throw gasoline on fires that are started out there but it is also a communication system. Uh, so a lot of the things that we have watched terrorists do abroad using social media, say in the Mumbai bombing, to be able to monitor where law enforcement and emergency vehicles were going, uh, we now see that being used to a great degree uh, in the United States to monitor, to localize support, and to uh, excite the, you know, the if there is a mob to violence like there was on January 6th, everybody's got their phone. I mean, the world is completely connected. So, so in the past, you know, most folks didn't carry around their particular devices because you could be targeted. But when you have such a mass of them, it is difficult to push into taking apart all the different signals that are coming in there to figure out who are leaders, who are doing things. So much of this will have to be done after the fact. So I think part of this just becomes, is there a requirement for legislation to be able to, when you submit for a demonstration, to be able to monitor uh, those devices, collect the information, have access to that in real time? And do we have the capability to do that at the local uh, 
law enforcement level, at the federal level, you know, much of what we do externally for terrorism, we work with, uh, you know, the different intelligence community agencies to help us with that architecture. But that that is not well oiled inside of uh, Homeland Security, the FBI, justice, to be able to put all of that together. And all I can tell you is the the difficulty we had doing this with terrorists and the meetings we had to have at the senior level to be able to take action I, I think that's just going to be amplified in the domestic threat piece. Um, it's the you know local law enforcement does it, uh, federal law enforcement does it, but I don't know that we have the architecture uh, and legal authorities laid out so that we can do this rapidly to deal with an emerging threat. That said, we still the majority of terrorist actions in the United States have always been by internal. You know, activities where people have been mobilized who are citizens to do things, and not just the Oklahoma bombing, but a lot of different things, the violence that you see. What happened in Oldsmar uh, with the uh, water purification uh, system and, and water system being affected by a hack into a SCADA system, you know, the systems that kind of control the network for all the different chemicals that flow in, clean the pipes, put fluoride, all those kind of things. I know that uh, people who have read that kind of understand, but most people don't know we have those for almost every system out there, and there's a lot of there's a lot of vulnerability. Not to mention the amount of toxic material that moves around on the United States rail networks, road networks uh, that can be um, ignited into something that creates uh, a problem. We we've seen that with accidents where you have. Uh, ammonia or something like that uh, moving inside of a, a vehicle on the road has an accident, and all of a sudden you have a cloud and a threat plume that kind of goes out that's toxic to do those kind of things. Um, it, it, with with the in-transit visibility systems that exist on computer networks from major uh, suppliers and major folks who move logistics uh, supplies that are, are toxic or hazardous, I mean, the opportunity to penetrate those and see where those things are at any given time gives you operational weapons on the road that if the right people can figure out how to create a situation, those are all useful. Now, that becomes a challenge, and you've got to have some senior leadership working those kind of things to put that together. But there's a lot moving around out there. Sitting here listening to you, General, it sounds like cyber is a way into a lot more systems and can cause a lot more damage maybe than traditional. And yet at the same time, we're going to have to face a lot more questions about what we are willing to give up in terms of more surveillance. Where do we want to head if we need to protect ourselves or do is that infringing on too many rights? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think you're absolutely right there. Again, especially in the United States, I think, um, you know, what we consider a U.S. person is not just what we would describe as U.S. citizens and the corporate enterprises that exist, uh, but you're a U.S. person and protected if you you are a site that's here doing things. So I mean, if you if you exist uh, in U.S. cyberspace, you may have protections, though you may be uh, you know an actor who is trying to do do harm. So clearly, we need to take apart the law enforcement. Uh, actions inside of this, but more importantly, it's agility. We uh, we are slow, even when we do this well. 
we are slow in our decision-making process. Uh, the federal authorities have most of the cyber offensive capability to sort through who's doing what to whom and, and make sure that they can verify things that are coming in as threats. Uh, but at the local level, people people can't afford this. Just go back down to Oldsmar to, uh, I don't know whether that was Pinellas or, or Hillsborough County down in Florida near Tampa down there, but how much do they have in resources to protect the architecture that supports their SCADA systems. I mean, they're delivering a service to people out there. That's their main mission. And now it becomes an opportunity for anybody to who has the skill set to get in there and attack and create, just creating fear, I mean, which is obviously the essence of domestic terrorism. It's, it's creating fear to gain a political effect. So tying those things, we have a lot of acts that seem like terrorism that may or may not have a political outcome defined with them. And just that the definition of what terrorism is domestically or internationally to be able to gain authorities is 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 normally the uh, you know the province of a national security staff meeting that takes way too long to make policy decisions that allow you to act inside of a threat scenario that's ongoing so I think you're absolutely right I mean it's um, cyber presents an opportunity that didn't exist before. And, and then if you look at the other side of that, it means what are we doing to be resilient? Uh, so cyber saves us money. I mean, SCADA systems, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's rather than having a person put X parts per million of lie uh, into the system, uh, a computer does that, does it uh, much more efficiently, much more effectively with less error from humans involved in this thing. And now we got to go, all right, if we are attacked, we shut down uh, systems or just denial of services uh, kind of attacks and a SCADA system can have an effect. Um, of course, the more we talk about it like this, <laughs> the more it creates ideas and opportunities for people who like to do this just to see if they can do it, uh, if that makes sense. Over. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that in this particular instance that the integrated and network-based system was essentially safeguarded by an individual identifying the error. So maybe moving forward, what is the right balance between convenience and uh, integrated systems and a, maybe a more analog approach to mitigate vulnerabilities? When I read the article and, and looked at it, I mean, they said there are protections in the system downstream that can do that. I'm, I'm not quite sure that I understand what they are. Uh, I suspect at a certain point when uh, your your system sends you an electronic trigger to do something that there is something that says, yes, this is actually happening, and oh, it's happening for too long, or the volume of flow is, is, is in there. But again, sophistication, if you're inside and you watch this for a while, the patient actor who wants to do malign activities against you will will test things and do things and watch your reaction. So they will go through action, reaction, counter reaction, real time wargaming inside of your cyber system to see how you react to do things. And, and like many of our, our adversaries who penetrated uh, our formal cyber systems and are looking at things, they just then recognize what they need to do. And if they actually act, just like we all do in, uh, in, in the intelligence business, there's a gain-loss equation. So 
if you know what's going on, know how it works, and it just stays there like that, then it is a potential threat that you can play when the right uh, conditions exist to have an impact. Um, so I, I think one of the things you see when you see things like uh, Oldsmar, um, you know, think about it from a higher threat order. People will be penetrating testing systems. It's the same reason, you know, in, in airspace that, you know, the, the Russians used to fly close to uh, – to, to the United States borders coming over the over the polar ice cap to see what the systems were, see what turns on. So, I mean, there's a lot of collection that goes on inside of a fire, cyber threat space by just action, reaction, counter reaction, doing things to save the opportunity uh, for a gain loss decision. Uh, if you are an, an internal terrorist threat or an external one to say, I need to use this for best political effect or best influence at a certain point in time. So it's, it, it's what we you know, used to do in a war game uh, for troops moving around uh, and, then, uh, and then have the decisions baked at decision points to be able to use the information when it makes the most sense. And it is so fast and at such real time that our decision-making architecture is not fast enough when somebody would choose to use it if they have wargamed all those actions through that water flow system and say, oh, I can shut this down, I can shut this down, I can do this uh, because I know how to do it, and they'll be inside of our decision cycle and have effects before we can do anything. Over. Yeah, General, part of my takeaway, I guess, from what you're saying is we've become pretty good at deterring, identifying, and stopping physical attacks originating from overseas that we have to deal better maybe with internal attacks to the extent those occur or could occur in the future. And that cyber is really opening up a whole new can of worms where at the one side, we're going to need more support from companies and municipalities and more effort where at the same time, everyone is constrained by money and the ability to deliver that. Is that kind of a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I think it's a great way to think about it, Peter. Uh, it also opens up the opportunity for external international threats that, um, you know, it's, it's, the world is basically flat when it comes to cyber. There are no oceans. There are no, uh, you know, you're as good as the protections you put in your system architectures. And the things that we do to collaborate across different functional areas, government levels and things like that are all vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, my most recent job that I was working uh, with as a corporate CEO, you know, right in last March when this all started and we had to go digital, you are as threatened as all of the different home systems that your people are working on, how well their protections are. You know, so we we had to go to always VPN. So you had to come in and sign into our system to then sign in to, you know, to go out and do work, which created a, uh, you know, an additional burden on the employee. And so as great as these engineers were, they would still do things that you can't see going on on their systems that introduce threats into yours. So we are, you know, I suspect we've been in a period for the last uh, almost year where, we are in, uh, in, in, the, in the cyber wild, wild west because 
individual employees working from home entering into collaborative systems and collaborative secure systems, then entering a cloud architecture, you set up a whole series of connections that are all junctions that are penetrable. Uh, and so people are testing and finding those. So it is, it is, it is becoming the competitive uh, space. You know, it's, it's, far more than competitive. I mean, I, I clearly think we're in a cyber warfare uh, kind of mode with many, many of our adversaries, and then with many of the people who are dissatisfied at home. Um, they, they just want to do something to mobilize their anger, and cyber is an easy way to do that. I mean, we have so many young people who, who, who are so smart. You have a lot of a lot of people, it's interesting, and I don't know how accurate the fact is, that one in five of the people charged so far in the uh, January 6th, uh, you know, uh, allegations are, are military. So you have people with experience who are politically frustrated, who have the capabilities, the, the wherewithal, the knowledge to organize, to understand, and to be able to mobilize talent inside of uh, um, a, a, a disaggregated organization of uh, political ideology, if that makes, makes sense. Yeah, and I hate to add fuel to the fire here, but you know, we probably still don't understand the full extent of the SolarWinds hack and what vulnerabilities that exposed or left exposed. Part of the challenge with all of this is, again, it comes, it comes back to how do we integrate uh, activities. Um, just look at the national security strategy that we have right now that wants to um, deal with near-peer competitors, uh, in, 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 and we don't have a national strategy to do that. I know the military, for the last few years since the, uh, the national strategy came out, has been trying to go, right, how do I participate in activities to influence action short of war without knowing how the State Department's part of the plan is or the commerce or treasury. It's the integrated efforts that we came back to with IRPTA, this you know, Intelligence Reform Act after 9-11 that, that allowed us to do things for external terrorist threats. We need uh, an, a, a reform act of some sort that looks at what's going on inside of the United States domestically uh, and, uh, and, and informed by what we learned from IRPTA. You know, organizations like the, the Joint Terrorism Task Force can look internal, but we haven't, we haven't asked them to do that kind of stuff to the degree uh, that we want to. I mean, they're really looking at it outside in. The FBI, the FBI really is the lead for most of this stuff for Homeland Security with justice. And who is going to introduce legislation to look at how we can better see the landscape, but most importantly, how can we be agile? How can we move quickly? What is the national security decision-making architecture, uh, or is it local? Is it state? You know, and you, you've got you got tribes, you got municipalities, you got states, you got federal, uh, all working with and not sharing based on protocols and, and law and policy information that they have about. U.S. citizens doing things. It's uh, there's a there's a lot more protections that are the uh, that really make it more more difficult for law enforcement integration with capabilities that exist to be able to uh, to move forward in this. Just just to see it and understand it. Maybe now is a good time to discuss the external threats we face. 
now that we're in an era of strategic competition, there's a refocusing of our national security strategy and assets, and that's more or less away from the Middle East and from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. With that reprioritization, there's an opportunity for ISIS and Al-Qaeda to reconstitute, evolve, grow in strength. General Kearney, how do you view the threat picture from external terrorism and how the nation can address it? You know, I don't, I don't think it changes how we perceive the threat. I think the terrorist threat is one that will never go away. Uh, you know, it, it's actually been cyclic over the years, and now the cycles, the sine wave is just, you know, its amplitude is, is, is increased, so you see things more often. Um, I am not sure that the new administration is committed to the complete uh, close down of, uh, of our, our global presence in the counter-terror fight. I know that the United States Special Operations Command largely um, has, has been given that task to continue to work that as their number one priority. But one of the interesting things, in my opinion, that happens in the Department of Defense and things is if the money follows strategic competition, and people in the services and the combatant commands to gain money will be will want to do things in that arena, whether it is their lane in the road. So you, I've, I've read a number of SOCOM uh, articles written out there where, the, all right, how are we going to help with strategic competition? How are we going to lead into the influence, which they are fully capable of doing in their mission sets? But without a strategy on how to how to do that at the at the national level, those are just kind of shots in the dark. But what we know they still need to be able to do is maintain, along with a portion of the intelligence community, a pulse on what's going on uh, with these uh, continuing uh, threats. For you know whether it's uh, Al Qaeda, whether it's ISIS, whether it's any of the different mutations of those that keep coming up. I mean, they are just like the pandemic. They will continue to mutate and they will continue to rise up uh, with, without addressing the underlying conditions in, in the nations where that's going on. Uh, but there's still a very, very strong ideology out there. So I, I think we will, you know, we have we've tried to pivot previously to, uh, to Asia. Um, but it will, you will play out in the short-term tactical uh, threats that occur. They somehow draw you in and keep you there. And so the, it really is in some of our strategic competitors' best interest to keep global terrorism alive and well, to keep the United States occupied so that we are less occupied uh, in the things that we need to do, both from a, an attention span point of view, but from a resourcing point of view, and from a reorientation uh, of resources to go towards those things. So words don't count unless they're followed up by actions, and the disruptive actions of terrorism over the last 20 years have stopped us from pivoting a number of times to do things. Um, but it's the, the proxy efforts going on with the Houthis through the Iranians is just one way to keep uh, their, their, you know, their Sunni uh, Arab counterparts occupied, busied, spending money uh, to do things uh, so that we're, 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 we're ubiquitously challenged around the world. See, that's my biggest worry about all this, is that terrorism creates 
a resourcing challenge, a priority challenge, an immediacy challenge. Uh, it, it takes tools that you can use for other parts of the strategic competition, and they have to be in place to keep the world at a new normal, some sort of homeostasis in the terrorism violence level. Um, but imagine what will happen if there are problems with the Saudi monarchy uh, and, uh, you know, we, we spend less money uh, supporting them because of, you know, the, the Khashoggi piece or the uh, Houthi violence that's created an international uh, challenge from the humanitarian point of view. But they are the main actor who probably will help balance Iran. So we, we have all these great tensions um, that take us away from this primary focus, which many people say is China, uh, although it's interesting. I just read that uh, Admiral uh, McRaven thinks Russia is a bigger threat uh, uh, internationally to do that. But, uh, I mean, those, those terror sponsors – Really, it's in their best interest to keep it alive and well, not to mention the own internal energy inside of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and, and uh, other organizations that have spun off out of them. Over. Are there any areas that you feel are particularly vulnerable or where you think we should be really focusing resources, whether it's you know power grids or water or pipelines or you know, even public gatherings, which we haven't had many of, but hopefully as COVID you know, is defeated, we will go back to having large public gatherings. Is there an area that, as we're resource constrained, that you view as vulnerable or where you'd want extra focus or intention to protect? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question, Peter, and all of those provide opportunities uh, for folks. Uh, you know, when you think about terrorism, you got to, the number one thing to think about is it's a political act to create an effect uh, in, in a, you know, normally through fear or violence to have an, an intimidating effect. And so today that means it has to be covered by media and social media. So, you know, when, when you analyze where people may act and where the vulnerabilities are, they're, they're what's going to be what's going to be visible, what's going to have the visible effect I want. So when I would, you know, start thinking about this, it's all right, who's the target audience? What's the vehicle for delivery of the influence or terror or fear message? And where are the venues, uh, whether they be physical, whether they be gathering, whether they be cyber, whether they be architecture, whether they be intersections of all that, that those things are going to occur. So some nodal analysis would help us figure that out. But it's, you know, to me, uh, I, I, <laughs> we haven't had a great failure on Wall Street. We haven't shut down the global uh, trading markets. You know, you that's where people with money uh, have their money. I mean, they make it in the stock market. They make, you know, it's, you, shutting down the banks is not going to do anything for you. Uh, but, you know, attacking the electrical grid is a, a huge piece because it shuts down everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think anytime you've seen a natural disaster, uh, you know that you, you can't get gasoline, not because gasoline isn't available, but because you don't have power. The same thing with uh, the airlines. So if there is a power outage or you've got a snowstorm or something like that, I many airlines, the airlines can't issue a ticket today to do things. So power and the architecture that allows you to do business day to day is probably the number one fear threat out there. And a second piece is attacking 
the markets and the stock markets. I mean, I, I would tell you that uh, the Reddit piece that's been going on here right now and GameStop, uh, those kind of things, to me, the fact that you can manipulate the market uh, to such gains and losses and affect things, it's, uh, you know, the I don't know whether it's just regulatory kind of things that go on there, but people will watch this and now, you know, that's shown a new stock market vulnerability for people's wallets and investment portfolios. Uh, and I don't think investment firms think much about that at this particular point in time, about how cyber manipulation uh, under whatever authorities they might need or create. I mean, I, I, I could see organizations creating a, a, a terrorist capability in, a, in, in some sort of investment kind of marketplace by creating an organization that can do those things and monkey with the uh, the stock market's volatility level. So, I uh, power, cyber, those are the those are the big things, and then physical effects where uh, there's a large audience that needs to be influenced. Yeah, I guess I have two things I can uh, add to that. I think yeah, we definitely saw this volatility and you know this different trading patterns that emerged with GameStop. I think people are taking a step back and saying, what does all this mean? Um, we do see overnight activity has been part of market. Um, increasingly, the moves have been occurring overnight. So I think people are going to look at this. Um, I think hopefully we're a long way from having you know any sort of direct impact on that, and we're well protected. Um, you know, I think another topic that comes up a lot in this that we can maybe deal with another day is you know Bitcoin and where does Bitcoin fit into that sort of activity um, as it gains more popularity and there are various actors in it. Um, one thing I really did want to add though is that I found really encouraging from a lot of our conversations with corporations in particular, um, both with General Stewart, General Hernandez, some of the other generals, is the amount of effort a lot of industry groups are putting into their cyber efforts. So in many places, it's gone above and beyond just individual companies doing what they need to do. There's a lot more collaboration. I think there's a, you know, a real strong belief that you can't really compete necessarily on cyber and you're all in this together and you want to be protected from the weakest link. So I've seen a lot, I think in the past two years, even more and more effort from industries to share industry, you know, to share information, to communicate with each other and build a collaborative cyber approach, which I think will be, you know, an important part of, you know, keeping this, you know, keeping us safe um, and defending against it. Yeah, I think there was always great fear that if you had a penetration and a loss, uh, that sharing it uh, would would put you uh, in, in a vulnerable position, whereas I think now uh, collaborating and, and having organizations that are trusted by all of the participants in some sort of corporate alliance, I, mean, I, I think you're going to see them doing the same kind of things that we do collectively, globally, you know, with alliances to kind of be able to uh, deter and to share and to share the burden uh, as you go forward. I mean, clearly the defense industries uh, need to do this and do it because they're forced to, uh, but uh, banking, investments, all of those things. Uh, I, I recall discussing this shortly after I got out of the military in about 2014. I went to the Herzliya conference over in Israel, and the Israelis were already doing this. They they had companies that stood up to work with different industries as a trusted agent, uh, and they would they would maintain the anonymity of who was being attacked or what the breach was, 
or where the vulnerability was, but they would upgrade everybody's level of protection from what they learned from it. I mean, ideally, um, we don't trust our government well enough to do those kind of things for us. So private, uh, you know, industry will probably collaborate with other private industry, which will just create another layer of knowledge that we have to find a way to share. Uh, <laughs> collaboration through alliances and doing things like that, if it's not, uh, you know, transparent to the government so they can learn and do things, because, again, they maintain the largest offensive capability that we have in the United States uh, to do things, and, and a lot of your offensive work is for defensive purposes, and you have to go on the offense to confirm the threat, the, where it came from, the pattern, all those kind of things. And, um, and it's this, this trust gap we have will continue to be a vulnerability for us across the multiple layers of government activities and commercial activities that don't have trust. My final thought is if somebody's listening to this, they're not going to walk away feeling good. Um, but that's probably what we need to understand is the vulnerability and the threat that does exist uh, across these different uh, environments. And the fact that it is layered across the entire, you know, uh, strata of our government, our industries, and, and how we do things. And that uh, the vulnerabilities are on the scene. The enemy will always find the scene, whether it's an economic competitor, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a threat competitor, whether it's a violent uh, organization. They find the seams. And so I'm not so sure we spend as much time in America looking for those seams to defend, but it seems to me that uh, every, every, every iterative change we make creates an opportunity uh, in the speed of change right now uh, in itself creates vulnerabilities on a routine basis for people who are moving faster than us. And as much as democracies and Jeffersonian democracies like ours are wonderful, they don't move as quickly as autocracies and dictatorships do, where they can align the efforts of their government structures to do things far more rapidly than we can. So we have to take a look at our decision-making structure to see how we can become more agile in making decisions more quickly, recognizing there may be risk in that. You know, it, it's amazing to me that we already know a lot of what we need to know. The question is, how do we move to action to do something about it? And that's been a that's been a national challenge in the United States with competing priorities, because everything is about prioritizing resources, having a strategy, getting behind those objectives, and doing things, and then stick sticking to it. And the world keeps trying to pull us in different directions um, uh, with day-to-day with -day activities that go on. And we sometimes, because we don't have somebody focusing on this to the degree. When you, when you have so many different secretaries and so much government turnover, the inability to focus is, uh, is to be expected. And so I hope there's stability in this new administration so that we can focus on these problems for a, at least a four-year period to get a good strategic plan to resource that plan and to begin to get things going uh, that we learn from. We've got to become a, a better learning organization as a government. Thank you, General Kearney, Peter, and Rachel for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you for our listeners for taking the time today. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical or macro strategy team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities 
I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.